So we're starting a brand new series. Last week I gave you an overview of the books of First and Second Samuel, really one book in the ancient text, and also how those books play out in the bigger story of the Old Testament. And we began with this idea that all of us in life are pursuing something. We live in a culture, and it's not just because the culture has made us this way, it's because we, the human beings in the culture, have shaped the culture to then shape us back this way. But we live in a culture that has caused us to be addicted to dissatisfaction. We are never satisfied with anything that we have. And so we're always looking after the next thing, the next best thing. The, uh, we have a fear of missing out. We have a fear of not having the coolest deal. And so all of us are living in that all the time. And this is a series where we're going to be investigating this idea of pursuit, asking ourselves the question, what are we chasing after? And also finding in the story of First and Second Samuel that all along the process of us chasing after other things, there is someone who is chasing after us as well. A key verse for the two books of First and Second Samuel comes in First Samuel 13. I'll put it up on the screen here again. This is Samuel talking to the current king, Saul, and he says, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And the middle part of this is the key. It says, the Lord has sought out a man who is after God's own heart. That means the Lord is seeking someone who is seeking him. God is pursuing someone who is pursuing him. God is after someone who is after him. We find out that that's David. But the basic idea of the entirety of First and Second Samuel comes into this kind of overarching umbrella phrase that God is searching for those who would search for him. God is pursuing those who would pursue him. The story begins in a heartbroken place. When we open up the pages of Samuel, we begin in a place of difficulty, hardship, and pain. I want to jump into it right now with you, so go there to 1 Samuel chapter 1 and we read these words. It says, there was a certain man from Ramathiam, a Zophite, from the hill, county, hill country of Ephraim. Now, you don't need to know all those sorts of things. You just need to know that this guy was, he was, you know, from the hill country of Ephraim, which means he is an Ephraimite, okay? Um, and he was this na- his name was Elkanah. He was the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephraimite. See, there you go. He lives in Ephraim, and he's an Ephraimite. There you go. That's how you can understand the Bible, because it just explained itself. But listen, all those names, I don't have time to explain all the significance of those things today, so let's just keep moving. It says, he had two wives... And that already lets us know that something in this story isn't right. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Hannah got named first. As we'll find out in just a little bit, Hannah is his favorite. But she doesn't have children. And so at some point along the journey, this man decided he would take another wife so that he could have kids. Elkanah decided that he needed kids and Hannah wasn't giving them to him, so he married another woman. Now, 
Put yourself in any one of these three people's shoes and you already can tell that the story is broken. And from your perspective, it's broken. From Penina's perspective, she's the one with the kids, but Hannah's the one that came first. Hannah's the one that Elkanah kind of likes better. From Elkanah's perspective, he didn't do anything to deserve a wife that couldn't bring him any children. And so he's doing the best that he can. From Hannah's perspective, it's not her fault. But let's see what happens. Verse 3, year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. Year after year. Where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. We'll learn a little bit more about this as we go on. But anytime you made a sacrifice, as long as it wasn't one of these sacrifices called a burnt offering, there were other kinds of sacrifices, as long as you made one of the normal kinds of sacrifices, only a portion of it was burnt on the altar for God, and then people ate the rest of it. It was like a good you know, barbecue kind of situation, good, good time. And when they worshiped God, they celebrated. It was a good thing. But it says this, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, Why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? The story begins in a very broken place. Elkanah is broken because his wife doesn't think he's worth more than ten sons. Hannah is broken because she can't have children and this other rival wife keeps making fun of her, teasing her, making matters worse. Elkanah, her husband, is giving her twice as much food, which probably makes the children on the other side of the family kind of jealous and irritated towards Hannah because Hannah's got a double portion of food, but she doesn't have any kids to give it to. And at the same time, she's not eating it, so it's just going to waste. The whole situation here is just brokenness upon brokenness. But there's a thing in the story that strikes me as even more painful than any of those other things. Did you see? It said it twice in there. The Lord had closed Hannah's womb. Now, there are all kinds of times in Scripture we find out about a person, a woman who doesn't have any kids. And she reaches out to God, she prays for kids, and sometimes God allows her to have kids. There are passages in Scripture that say the woman who has no children is more blessed than the woman who does have children because the woman who has no children actually has tons of people she can call her children. But even though the Bible sometimes brings it about that the woman can have a kid that she wants, and even though sometimes God doesn't bring it about, this is one of those times where we see specifically in the story that this problem is God's doing. Now, as we're about to see, Samuel, who is a child who's going to come later, a miraculous child out of this. He is most likely the one who wrote down these early chapters of Samuel, of this book. 
And he is the one who is hearing God speak directly to him. And so when we read the words that the Lord closed her womb, we shouldn't conclude that this is, oh, just the way they talked about things back then. We should conclude that at some point in time, God revealed to Samuel the reason his mom couldn't have kids was because God chose to block it. Here's one of the hardest lessons that we human beings have to learn. It shows up time and time again in the Bible, and yet we still have a hard time learning it. Sometimes our hardship is actually God's choice. We want to live in this world where we get this idea that our, our lives are supposed to be lives of comfort. Our lives are supposed to be lives of ease. And that when something happens that is hardship, we think that it's the forces of evil, or we think it's the result of sin, or we think it's the result of a bad decision that we made or something. Very rarely will we encounter a difficult circumstance and say, God, this must be your choice for me. Thank you. But this is one of those stories where the hardship is God, can I even say God's fault? God's the one who chose for her to be in this much pain. How do you respond to something like that? How would you respond to something like that? What if you knew that the reason you were going through a hard time was not because you had somehow slipped past God's watchful eye and that out of his ignorance you ended up in trouble? What if you learned that the reason you were in a position of hardship is specifically because God had chosen to put you there? For a lot of people, that's the kind of thing that drives them away from God. How could a loving God allow bad things to happen to good people, someone might say? What if the loving God is causing bad things to happen to good people? See, some people hear this lesson and they run away from God. But some people hear this lesson and move toward God. Some people say, if God is the one who brought this into my life, then God is the one who can remedy it. God is the one who can change it. And if I have no one else on this earth but God, I will still reach out to Him. And that is what Hannah does. In the midst of her pain and her anguish, even perhaps her suspicions that it is God's fault, she still reaches out to God. See what happens next. Pick it up in verse 9. Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. To remind you, this is before the temple was built. The Lord's house refers to the tabernacle, the tent that Moses and the others built back during the days of the Exodus. It's a tent that is around 400 years old by this point in time, around maybe 500 years old by this point in time. We're talking, this is a tent that probably isn't that great looking anymore. Maybe they fixed it up, I don't know. But when they say Lord's house... That's what they're talking about. They're talking about the tent and perhaps some buildings built nearby. Anyway, in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head." As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth 
Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Now, I'm going to pause here for just a moment. Because this is our first hint of how oblivious and broken as a priest Eli is. See, we know that Hannah is broken as a mom. We know that Peninnah is broken as a second wife. We know that Elkanah is broken as a dad, father, husband. We know that Eli is also broken as a priest because he's the priest and he can't recognize when someone is praying. He's a priest and he sees a woman standing up in the temple tent tabernacle area of God in response to a sacrifice she is stood up she is off she is crying she is praying she is mouthing words and he thinks well she's drunk what kind of priest can't even tell when someone is praying she says verse 15 not so my lord using words of respect for this man who's already insulted her. Hannah replied, I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant what you've asked of him. And suddenly Eli turns into, you know, the priest who gives the blessing from God. And Hannah, she said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. What? Something happens here in this moment where Hannah, she knows that Eli is a broken priest. She knows that Eli is not the right kind of priest that he's supposed to be. And yet, he still somehow has the position to speak for God. And so when he says, may God do for you what you've asked, Hannah believes that that's a real blessing. She believes that that blessing is coming from God through the priest to her. And so she eats and she's happy and she goes away and she's like, God has heard my prayer. Even though Eli's broken, God is still at work. Verse 19, early the next morning they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah and the Lord remembered her. The exact thing she had asked for. She said, remember me. And the text says, the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Samuel means something. It sounds a lot like the Hebrew phrases for the Lord hears or the Lord will hear. Here's the weird thing about this story. It is obvious from the rest of the book that Samuel needed to be here. It's obvious from the rest of the book, as we're going to see over the next couple of weeks, Samuel is one of the most important people in the entire Old Testament Scripture. Because Samuel was the resurrection, metaphorically, of Moses. 
Moses had died, and then it was Joshua, who wasn't really a spiritual leader. He was mostly a military leader. And then it was a whole bunch of judges who were mostly military leaders, not very much spiritual leaders. And so from, from Moses' day all the way until Samuel's day, there had basically been no spiritual leader. Even Eli the priest, he's not doing his job very well. There had basically been no spiritual leader in the nation. And so Samuel is going to become that, as we're going to see. But notice this. The only reason Samuel is born, the only reason Samuel, after he is born, is given over and given over to live in the temple area, the tabernacle area with Eli, the only reason these things happen is because of the vow Hannah made. And the only reason she made that vow is because of the barrenness she had been experiencing and the anguish and the pain she had been experiencing for so much of her life. Here's the most amazing thing about this story. Hannah went through all this hardship, but let's keep reading about this blessing. Pick it up in verse 19. Pick it up, excuse me, in verse 21. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to honor, actually, we're on 24 now. I better skip ahead to that. So they go back up and they worship a few more times at the tabernacle. And Hannah says, when Samuel is weaned, I will bring him there too. So let's skip ahead to verse 24. It says this, after he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull and ephah of flour and a skin of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli and she said to him, pardon me, my Lord. As surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given over to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. He worshiped the Lord there. This last line, the he there is Samuel himself. I will give him over to the Lord and Samuel from the earliest age became a worshiper of the Lord. Now here is the thing. Hannah, the only reason she made this vow was because of her hardship. And it was because of this vow that then she has a child and she can bring this child to the temple where he becomes a worshiper, follower, and eventually he becomes the leader, the spiritual leader of the entire nation of Israel. Do you realize that God's plan required her hardship? And Hannah's hardship was designed by God to bring a blessing. Hannah's hardship was designed for her blessing, and it was designed for the blessing to the world. You see, without her hardship, there would have been no vow. Without the vow, there would have been no Samuel given over to the Lord. Without Samuel given over to the Lord, there would have been no Samuel who rose up to be the next uh, Moses, effectively, there would have been no spiritual and military leader. There would have been no one to anoint the next king and then eventually to anoint the real king, David. Without Samuel, the hinge point of the Old Testament story doesn't happen. And the only reason it can happen is because of the hardship that God caused to happen in the life of Hannah. 
I don't know what kind of hardship you are going through these days, what kind of hardship you're experiencing, or what kind of hardship you will experience. But know this, sometimes hardship is God's specific choice because He has a blessing that only comes to the world and only comes to you after such a hardship. Hannah, in such joy and praise towards God, she says a prayer that we all understand was actually a song. And it's an amazing passage here in chapter 2 where we read Hannah's song because there are just a few worship songs in the Bible. I mean, the book of Psalms is, for the most part, David's worship songs. And so he gets kind of a special pass as the worship song creator. But outside of the book of Psalms, there are only a very few There is Moses and Miriam when Pharaoh and his army gets killed in the Red Sea. They sing a song. There's a song that Deborah sings. There's a song that some other Old Testament players sing. There's also a song that Mary sings when she hears she's going to give birth to the Messiah. But here there's a song that Hannah sings and it gets recorded for us. And there's some key important parts in it. I'm going to read the whole thing, but then make a couple comments on it. Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. Horn is a metaphor for strength. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For God, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by Him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled and are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and He exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, there are a couple interesting things in this little prayer, this song. I want to highlight them for you. First, I want to show you just verse 3. It says, Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by Him deeds are weighed. On the one hand, you might say, oh, this is just Hannah getting back at Peninnah. And she's singing this song and she's saying, aha, so Peninnah, you know, you've been, you've been accusing me for a long time. Don't keep talking so proudly. Your arrogance is going to get you. Ha, ha, ha. I don't think so. I don't think Hannah is trying to be so malicious towards the specifics of her situation. I think she is speaking more broadly. And what she is saying here is that God knows. That's the point. 
Do you remember when she said, God, remember me? Here in the song, she's asserting that God always knows. God already knows what's going on. You, you don't have to wait for God to remember you. God is a God who always knows what's going on. And, and she's reminding herself and she's reminding the people around her that yes, God is a God who always knows what's going on. Let me show you verse 7. Verse 7, it says, The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and He exalts. It's just one little verse in the context of all these other things that have said, said similar things. But God is a God who actually has a plan. He's the one who sends the poverty and the wealth. He's the one who humbles and He exalts. That means God doesn't just know what's going on. He also has a plan. I know a lot of times you and I would think, well, you know, we're just flying by the seat of our pants out here. We're trying to figure out life as we go along. But God actually does have a plan. Let me show you uh, verses 9 and 10. It says, He will guard the feet of His faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. There are two things in this passage that I want to highlight for you. The first one is that God is the one who can break those who oppose him. God is the one who will guard the feet of his faithful servants. God is the one who can silence the wicked. God is the one who can send the wicked to the place of darkness. You see, the point here in this first little section is that God is able to bring about justice, but the next part down here is that God is going to do something. Through this moment, he is going to make a king. This is interesting. Here are the two statements from this passage I want you to highlight. The first one is that God is a God of justice. He is a God who is going to bring about justice. But beyond the justice, God has a plan for a strong king. And everything that's been going on in Hannah's life has been trying to reach out to see, will God pay attention to me? Yeah, God already is paying attention to you. Trying to see, is God going to do the right thing? Yeah, God always does the right thing. Trying to see what God is up to. And at the end of her song, without any prompting from anywhere else, she says, God is planning to bring a king. That's fascinating because Moses never appointed anyone to be a king. Joshua never appointed anyone to be a king. None of the judges ever acted like a king except for Gideon's sons. They, you know, tried to act like they were kings, but that got shut down pretty quickly. But none of the judges were actually kings. None of them were worthy of being kings. And here, out of the blue, Hannah is like, but God, he's got a plan for a king. We're going to come back to that in a couple weeks. Because Samuel has a very unique role to play in this whole king thing. But the question you probably have at this point in time is, okay, what's the deal with Samuel? We know that Hannah went through a hardship and then God blessed her. But now there's this little boy who's three, four years old and he's been dropped off at the tabernacle where there's Eli, a priest that we already know is 
old and maybe a little senile and not a very good priest? What's going to happen with this little boy Samuel? I mean, I want to track that kid. Well, guess what? We will track him a little bit, but the writer of these first three chapters wants to highlight a contrast between Hannah and her kid and Eli and his kids. And so before we talk about Samuel and what happened to him, we're going to talk about Eli's kids. In particular, because we need to know, before we find out that Samuel is a good guy, and by the way, he is, before we find out that Samuel is a good guy and that Hannah's kid grew up to be something great, we also need to learn that Eli's kids were bad. In fact, they weren't just bad by the way we read the story. It's not our conclusion. It's the writer of the story himself who starts out talking about Eli's sons by using the word scoundrels. It says this. Go ahead and pick it up. It says in verse 12, Eli's sons were scoundrels. What a word. I mean, that's just, that's just the writer saying, these guys were some bad dudes. Let's find out why they were so bad. They had no regard for the Lord. Now, it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or cuddle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Now I'm going to explain this for you a little bit. You see, the Old Testament had given us some pretty clear rules about sacrifices. And as I already mentioned, one of the things about the sacrifices is that if it's not a burnt offering, if, if you don't burn up the entire sacrifice on the altar, then a good portion of the meat is held back and eaten by the various people involved. And in the sacrifices, there was always a portion for God, a portion for the priest, and a portion for the people who brought the sacrifice so that they could celebrate together. That's how it worked. There was a portion that you burned, there was a portion you gave to the priest, there was a portion you just kept as a family and you ate. And this passage is telling us that around the time the tabernacle was at Shiloh, there was a tradition that was practiced by the priests. Now, this tradition I'm about to explain is not from the Old Testament scriptures on sacrifice. It's just the tradition they did. The author here is telling us that what would happen is they would come and they would apparently put some of the meat on the altar and burn some of it. And, and they would apparently then boil the rest. And then the priest would send a servant, apparently, to take a fork, some type of trident or whatever, and just randomly stab into the pot and pull out whatever they wanted. So if you were a smart family, you would cut your stuff up into small pieces, and then not much could have been brought up. I don't know how this all worked out, but it sounds to me, obviously, like a smart servant could figure out where to stab in the pot, and a smart family could figure out how to, you know, get 
their own meat kept for them and not let the priest have. There's plenty of opportunity for this to just go wrong, but this is still the strategy that they had. The servant would come and plunge the fork in, and whatever he got, he would take back to the priest. But then what this passage tells us, and I'll just let you know, that was wrong. That's not the way it should have operated. But what this passage tells us is that Eli's sons were doing even more than that. They were even worse than that. What Eli's sons were doing is they were telling their servant to come and to take some of the meat before it had been given to God. They were taking some of the meat while it was still raw Nothing had been burned yet. Nothing had been boiled yet. They wanted a hunk of the meat before anything else had happened to it. They wanted to have it for themselves. And let me just show you what the Old Testament actually said. Let me show you what Leviticus actually says. In chapter 7, beginning in verse 28, It says, the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, anyone who brings a fellowship offering to the Lord is to bring part of it as their sacrifice to the Lord. Part of it. Part of it goes to the Lord. With their own hands, they are to present the food offering to the Lord. So they are supposed to present it to the Lord with their own hands. Then they are to bring the fat together with the breast Okay, so they, they, they've butchered the animal, they've trimmed the fat and the breast meat of the animal and wave the breast before the Lord as a wave offering. So you have the fat, all the interior organs and, and, and the, the fatty bits and you bring that and then you also bring the breast and you take the breast meat and you wave the breast meat in front of the altar while the fat is burning. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast belongs to Aaron and his sons. So the fat is being burned on the altar. The breast of the animal is being smoked with that in front of the altar. Then the priest gets the breast meat to have for himself and his family. And then you are to give the right thigh of your fellowship offerings to the priest as a contribution. Let's keep going. It says, the sons of Aaron, the son of Aaron who offers the blood and the fat of the fellowship offering shall have the right thigh as his share. From the fellowship offerings of the Israelites, I've taken the breast that is waved and the thigh that is presented and have given them to Aaron the priest and his sons as their perpetual share from the Israelites. So here it is. The sacrifice happens in this specific way. There's a portion for God, specifically the fat and just the interior stuff. They they burn that on the altar. There's a portion for the priest that gets waved in front of the altar. There's another portion given to the priests raw from the thigh. They get that stuff, and then the family gets the whole rest of the animal for their celebration. But you should notice you should notice that there are no servants anywhere in this story. Right? I mean, the priest takes it with his own hands and puts some of it on the altar. The family uses their own hands to present it to the priest. God was very specific. He even used the phrase, use your own hands. God was very specific. He didn't want there to be any sort of personal exploitation here. There's no servant involved. There is the person offering the sacrifice, and there is the priest. And it's just that. 
So the first thing that's wrong with this tradition is the servant thing. The second thing that's wrong with this tradition is the random fork-stabbing thing. No, the priests were supposed to get a very specific amount of food from a very specific part of the animal in a very specific way. This random fork-stabbing thing doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's wrong, but here's the real problem. The real problem is that Eli's sons, it says specifically in Samuel, Eli's sons, they were getting the meat before the fat was even burned off. That means these guys were exploiting others, the servants and the other people, and they were taking God's portion for themselves. If you're in the book of Leviticus chapter 7 and you just go two verses earlier than what we read back in verse 24, It specifically says, anyone who eats the fat of an animal from which a food offering may be presented to the Lord must be cut off from their people. Old Testament law words, cut off from their people, means killed. Sometimes it means sent away. But usually it means killed. God says, if you eat the fat, that's my bit. That's the part that gets burned. That's Eli's son's problem. Not only are they following this tradition that isn't right, but they're going one step worse by exploiting their own servants to take God's portion for themselves. That's why the passage tells us that they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. These guys are bad guys, scoundrels, as the passage tells us. Skip ahead with me. Let's look at verse 22 and let's figure out what Eli does about this. Now, Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. What? We now learn something else Eli's sons are doing. Not only are they taking God's portion of the, of the sacrifice, not only are they exploiting servants to do their dirty work for them, but they're also sleeping with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of, the meet, of meeting. Now, this is interesting because in ancient cultures, there were almost always women at almost every temple, and they were called temple prostitutes. And one of the things that these other cultures would do is they would do work worship of God through temple prostitution. It was not a good thing. And it was a practice that God specifically said he never wanted to happen. And these guys, Eli's sons, have set it up at the temple. Maybe not for everybody, but at least for them. These women probably came because they seriously wanted to serve God. And these priests are inappropriately taking advantage of them. 23, so Eli said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. Why don't you know it for yourself, dude? I mean, seriously, why do you have to hear about your son's behavior from everybody else? You're the high priest, right? These guys are the priests. You should be there too when they do their stuff. Whatever. I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Now, I want to highlight a couple things for you here. 
It was God's will to put them to death, and that's why they don't pay attention to their dad. Uh, There are a couple times in Scripture where you get this picture of God actually hardening someone's heart so that they will go down a path farther and farther away from God. It happened with Pharaoh, you know. God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he wouldn't let the people go so that all these uh, plagues would have to go through. And now he's doing the same thing for Eli's sons. He says, no, they've sinned. My plan is to put them to death. There's no reason for them to pay attention to you. That's a very interesting phrase, but it's not the most interesting phrase to me in this little section. The most interesting one to me is this one. If anyone sins against the Lord... Who will intercede for them? The high priest. Eli, specifically himself, is the guy God has put on the planet to intercede for anyone who sins against the Lord. It's his job as the high priest to intercede for anyone who sins against the Lord. And Eli, the high priest, is saying, well, sons, you sinned against God, so no one can handle that. It's literally his job. I don't understand how bad this guy is at his job. But Eli is proving that it's not just his sons who are the bad priests. It's Eli himself who's the bad priest. He raised these boys. He's the one who still won't do anything for them. And what's fascinating to me is that Eli's job is to talk to God, to go towards God in the midst of his own brokenness. But he doesn't. That's the contrast between Eli and Hannah. It was Eli's job to talk to God. And yet he does bare minimum. Verse 27 Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, again, that line is interesting because Eli was supposed to be a man of God. He was literally the high priest. He lived at the tabernacle. That's the place where Moses met God face to face, we are told. But Eli is not the man of God, another man of God, a mysterious and unknown elsewhere man of God shows up and said to him, this is what the Lord said. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest. He's talking about Levi and Levi's children, the Levites, and then eventually Aaron, Moses' brother. Uh, The man of God says, I chose Aaron, your ancestor, out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod in my presence. The ephod is the, the linen cloak that the priests wore to signify themselves as the priests. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? Eli was doing it too. Maybe the sons learned what they were doing from their old fat dad. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever, but now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. 
The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach old age. And you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, no one in your family line will ever reach old age. Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength. And all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house, and they will minister before my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and plead, appoint me to some priestly office so I can have food to eat. This man of God, this man of God says, okay, Eli, you thought because you were a descendant of Aaron, that that was good enough. But nope, I will honor those who honor me. Just because you're a descendant of Aaron doesn't mean you get to stay my priest. Your time is done. I'm going to wipe you and your whole family line out. Man, that's a hard word. But guess what? God knows what's going on. And God has a plan. And God brings justice, and God is moving towards a truly strong king. But the question still remains, what about Samuel? So let me show you how Samuel is different from Eli and his sons. We're jumping back into chapter 2 now just for a little bit. In verse 18 in chapter 2, it says this, But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. He was wearing priestly clothes. And then if we keep going, we skip just ahead to verse 21. It says, And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord, before the Lord, in the presence of the Lord. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in statue and in favor with the Lord and with people. We get three little snippets through chapter two of how Samuel is doing the right thing. Samuel is growing up, he's maturing, and he's doing it all in the context of and presence of the Lord. And that brings us to chapter three, the most famous part of Samuel's story. Chapter three, verse one. It says, the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. Keep that in mind. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me? But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again, the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me? My son, Eli, said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Remember back in verse 1? It said the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Verse 7, the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to Samuel. Uh, Clearly, the writer is trying to indicate to us that there's something about the word of the Lord that we need to be attentive to. 
And it's been silent for a while, and Samuel doesn't know it when it's happening because it's been silent for a while, but it's starting to happen now. Verse 8. A third time the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me? Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. It took Eli three guesses, three times to figure out that, oh, maybe this is God talking to him. So Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down, and if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there. Not just a voice. Stood there calling as at the other time. Samuel. Samuel. Twice. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. But Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, here I am. What was it he said to you, Eli asked? Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, he is the Lord. Let him do what's good in his eyes. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord, and the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh. And there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. Revealed himself to Samuel through his word. There's a chapter break there. But if you just slide into chapter 4 just a little bit, the first little phrase of chapter 4 is, and Samuel's word came to all Israel. By the end of the story, Samuel's word and God's word have become intertwined. Now what's fascinating about this, of course I learned this story when I was a kid, Sunday school flannel graph board, you know, that kind of thing. I learned this story when I was a kid. There's a little boy, God calls him, and he's like, well, I'm going to Eli, and then finally he realizes it's God, and so he talks to God, and that's where the the little Sunday school story ends. It's God talking to Samuel. Oh, what a great thing. It's wonderful. Now, kids, let's talk about being attentive to to God and being ready to hear his voice, if his voice is ever going to say anything, and and things like that. But, But what we forget is that the message that God gave to Samuel was already given. I'm fascinated by this. A man of God had already told Eli this message. There's nothing new in this message for Eli. There's nothing new in this message for you or for me. There is literally no reason for God to have given this message to Samuel for Eli because Eli already knew it. Unless... Unless the message wasn't for Eli at all. Eli already knew it. 
You see, I think what God is doing here in this moment with Samuel is kind of a test. God tells Samuel the most difficult thing Samuel can hear about the person who is going to ask him to share. And the test is, will Samuel repeat God's words or not? Will Samuel be the kind of person who hears God's word and just spits it back out? Or is Samuel going to be one of these people who hears God's word and then shapes it and then tweaks it and then says, but I'm going to do it slightly differently. Is Samuel going to be one of these guys who's going to get what God says and just pass it right along? He's going to hear it, heed it, do it, give it. Or is he one of these guys who's going to kind of do his own thing? See, the, the part of this story culminates this, from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 3. It culminates in this one moment at the end where God finally has found a man who's just going to represent him. Eli's been representing his own interests for a while. Eli's sons have been representing their own interests for a while. But finally, in Samuel, God found a man who will represent him. Listen, I believe that this whole thing, you know, at the beginning of chapter 3 where it says the word, of the, the word of the Lord was rare, it clearly wasn't that rare because there was a man of God available to hear God's word and speak to Eli, right? But my guess is the word of the Lord was rare because there were, it was rare you would find a person who would hear God's word and share it like it is. I believe that God back then was pursuing, eager. He was ready to reveal Himself just so long as there would be someone who would represent Him instead of Himself. I think the summary for this comes in the words the man of God spoke. In chapter 2, verse 30, it says this, Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. That's the summary for everything we've seen in these chapters. Hannah was a woman who literally had God's hand on her for her own hardship, and yet she honored God. And God, in response, honored her. She made a vow, and God honored her vow. Samuel wasn't just raised in the temple. He was raised well in the temple. 
He was raised well in the tabernacle area. Somehow, Eli, who was a terrible father to his own sons, was able to give Samuel enough of whatever he was able to give Samuel so that Samuel could grow up to become an honorable man. And I'm sure Hannah was proud of him every time they went back to the tabernacle to see him. She honored God, and God honored her. And Samuel... Samuel honored God. All he wanted to do was just serve God and be in God's presence. He was literally sleeping in the tabernacle. All he wanted to do was honor God, and God saw that and honored him back, built him into the number one leader that Israel had for years surrounding him. But Eli wasn't trying to honor God. His sons weren't trying to honor God. And so judgment was spoken over them. And so we come back to this question I started last week asking you to ask. Where do I find myself in this story? Am I Hannah? And I've been experiencing hardship, but I just need to keep honoring God, trusting that he's going to do the blessing in his proper time. Am I Samuel, a kid who who just was put into a position that he didn't know why he was there. His mom made a vow. He's stuck in this position, and now he's got to make the best out of his current situation, but he's going to honor God, and God reveals himself to him. Or are you Eli, a person who has great significance, great influence, great position, but just you're lazy, you've gotten past you know, doing anything that really takes any effort, and you've decided, no, I'm just going to let the world around me slide however it's going to slide. You've got your position, you've got your authority, and that's all that you care about. Are you Eli's sons? And you're striving for power, you're striving for influence, you're striving for the next thing, and you don't care how you hurt someone in the process, or who you hurt. Where do you find yourself in this story? As for me, I want to be a person like Samuel, but I'm afraid of the inconvenience. I want to be a person like Hannah, but I'm nervous about the hardship. But I'll tell you what, as long as I can rely on the promise of God that He honors those who honor Him, then I'll just keep doing my best to honor Him. I'm convinced God is hungry. He is looking for people who will simply represent Him in this world. And I ask you to join me in that this week. Be a person who speaks God's words to other people. Be a person who represents the life of Jesus to other people. Be a person who represents God well in this world, and I believe He will reveal Himself to you and through you. And... As we do it together, to and through all of us. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.